I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. If Jesus Christ were to write a letter to West Sand Lake Community Church, what would he write? What would he say about us? What would he say to us? These are questions worth considering. We look to God's word in Revelation 2 and 3 because Jesus Christ wrote seven letters seven churches. And each one of these churches has received a direct address by the Lord of the church. And with each letter, it is instructed that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, has Jesus written a letter to West Sand Lake Community Church? Yes, seven of them. And we need to listen. Let's listen to God's word as we read Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus' letters to the churches. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation." Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality." So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, 
and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we ought to take every word that you revealed to us in your Bible seriously. But these ones seem to carry an added weight being directed to churches. Help us then to consider these words carefully, to have ears to hear them. And Lord, as you speak to us from your word to receive whatever commendation that you would have and any rebuke that you would have. And where we need rebuke, I pray that you would lead us to repent. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We've just read the seven letters to the churches from the Son of God. These are serious words. They show us that Jesus Christ cares about his church. If I were to give you a brief rundown of what he says to each one, he says to Ephesus, the first one, that they're orthodox. They have good doctrine, but they lack love. They must overcome this lack of love in order to inherit eternal life. The church at Smyrna endures tribulation and must continue to be faithful in the face of that tribulation and with the onslaught of even more persecution. They need to be conquerors. And as they do so, they will inherit eternal life and heavenly kingship. The church in Pergamum perseveres in witnessing and testifying of Jesus Christ in the face of persecution, but it has idolatrous compromise. And it must overcome this in order to not be judged by the Lord of the church and to inherit fellowship with Christ. Thyatira has love and faith and service and endurance in the face of persecution, but it also tolerates idolatrous compromise. It must repent in order to inherit end-time rule with Christ. The church in Sardis, at the beginning of chapter 3, lacks witness and possesses compromise so that it is called to be dead, and it must repent in order to inherit the blessings of salvation. The church of Philadelphia receives condemnation or commendation because it has a persevering witness, and it should endure in that witness in order to inherit end-time fellowship and identification with Christ. And then the last one, the church at Laodicea, is ineffective in their witness. And even though that they think that they are fine, Jesus calls them poor and spiritual condition, they must persevere, renew their fellowship with Christ in order to reign with Christ. All seven of these churches were real churches in Asia Minor. They were known to the Apostle John to whom this book of Revelation was given. And of course, they were known to Jesus Christ. They existed in a real time, a real place. They existed during the time of the Roman Empire. They faced real persecution, real hardships as churches. They faced real false teaching that they needed to endure through. And even though we're separated from these churches by nearly 2,000 years, we share the same Lord and the same temptations that they shared. And if we're to fast forward to the church of the modern era, what would Jesus say to us now? I don't think he would say anything different than what he's just written in these letters. Because we're called to listen with a discerning ear and evaluate what of this applies to us now. When modern theologian writes about the modern church, and he says, certainly no church is perfect, but, thank God, many imperfect churches are healthy. Nevertheless, I fear that many more are not. Even among those that would affirm the full deity of Christ and the full authority of Scripture, 
What has landed us in this predicament? Oz Guinness, in his provocative little book, Dining with the Devil, has suggested that the problem is secularization. Guinness writes that even theologically conservative churches that are self-consciously opposed to secularism are nevertheless themselves often unwitting bastions of a secularized version of Christianity, and that the two most easily recognizable hallmarks of secularization in America are the exaltation of numbers and of technique. That's certainly an indictment on many modern churches. He goes on to say, let's be honest, the state of churches in America today is not good. Even if the membership numbers of some groups look okay, as soon as you ask what the membership numbers actually stand for, you start finding the trouble. Alan Redpath has said about the membership of the average American church that 5% don't exist, 10% can't be found, 25% don't attend, 50% show up on Sunday, 75% don't attend the prayer meeting, 90% have no family worship, and 95% have never shared the gospel with others. What would Christ say to our church? Where do we stand in his evaluation? We need to heed his words to the churches and let his word evaluate where we stand. We're not a perfect church because I'm in it. Not a perfect church because you're in it. This chapter, these chapters of Revelation are not demanding perfection from us. They're demanding that we be a faithful witness unto Christ, stirred up by love for Christ and love for others. And where that faithful witness has been compromised by association with the world and worldly thinking and worldly methodology, or where there's a lack of love in our hearts, we need to repent. As individuals, perhaps as a church where we are convicted together, and where we find ourselves faithful to the Lord, where he would commend us, we need to give thanks to him for helping us. And so as we look at these letters and try to pick them apart a little bit, we let this word speak to us for encouragement as well as for conviction. And don't harden your heart towards what Christ would have us repent of. Take this chap- these chapters apart. There's no way that we can go through them in detail in a few moments that we have this morning. So we'll try to highlight some of the essence of what's captured in these letters. Let's start by considering that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church. Because that's the way the introduction to each of these letters begins. If you are paying attention as we read, there's a summary statement about who Jesus is with each letter. Jesus is Lord of his church and he is a glorious Lord. When you meet Jesus Christ in the Gospels, you meet the humble Son of Man who came to take on flesh and live a life of a slave. You meet the humble Son of God who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But Jesus says at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24, verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Jesus himself recognizes that he was humbled to the point of death on the cross, and he suffered, but he also came to be glorified. And so we think of Jesus as the humble one who came into Jerusalem riding on the foal of a donkey. And that's right, we are to think of him as that. He is humble, he is the humble Savior. But we must not stop there because he is the glorious Lord of the church. And he has revealed himself in the book of Revelation to be that glorious Lord. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, that after, or verse 9, after Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has suffered, he died, he rose, he's ascended into heaven, and he is now glorious at the right hand of God the Father. When the elderly Apostle John was living out his days on the Isle of Patmos, having been exiled because of his testimony to the Word of God, he had an encounter with the glorified Jesus. Now you have to remember that John had been with Jesus on earth for three years. He knew him so well and was so close to him that at the Last Supper, John laid his head on the chest of Jesus. And now he meets Jesus again, probably roughly about 60 years after he'd seen him last. And in chapter 1, verse 12, the apostle John sees the Lord Jesus Christ. Having been spoken to by him, it says in John 1, or Revelation, excuse me, Revelation 1, verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. John has met the glorified Christ, and he's terrified to death of him. So as we think of the Lord Jesus Christ who speaks to his churches, yes, we think of him as the humble servant, who is humble to the point of death, who is meek and mild, who is gentle and lowly, but he is also glorious and powerful. And when a living man, John, who had been with Jesus on earth, sees him again in his glory, he falls down like a dead man. And so we do not trifle with the Lord of the church. He is the one who possesses all power and has all authority over the church. And he wants us to think of him as such. That's why he introduces himself with an attribute, with each letter, For example, in chapter 2, verse 1, he describes himself as the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He is the one who is present with his church, who upholds his church, who sustains it. He identifies himself with it. He knows the church. In chapter 2, verse 8, he describes himself as the one who is the first and the last, who died and came to life. He possesses the attributes of God. He has life in himself. He has no beginning and no ending. And yet, this one who has no beginning and no ending, who has life in himself, died and rose again. And so he conquered death. Chapter 2, verse 12, he is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And it's to say that he is the one who stands as judge over his church. He possesses the authority to strike down. And he does so by the sharp words of his mouth. Chapter 2, verse 18, he's described as the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. To be the Son of God means that he's not the Son of Zeus. He's the Son of the living God, the real God, the true God. And to have eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze means that he can see through all with penetration that no one else possesses. And his feet are so fiery and so solid that he can't stamp out judgment with absolute sovereignty. Chapter 3, verse 1, he has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars means that he possesses the Holy Spirit without measure, the spirit who sees all and knows all. 
and he holds the seven stars, the angels of the churches in his hands. He possesses authority over his church. In chapter 3, verse 7, he is described as the Holy One, the true one, who has the keys, key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. It means that he's the ruler of the kingdom of God and has absolute authority over who enters and who is shut out of that kingdom. Chapter 3, verse 14, he is the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus is the supreme witness of the truth of God. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he's the beginning of God's creation, not meaning that he was made first, but that when he was resurrected from the dead, he is the start of the new creation of God, where he begins redemption in all things. These are the descriptions of the Lord of the church. No one else rises to these heights. No president no world leader, no human church leader rises to the heights of this one who possesses all authority. In this, these phrases, he is the head of the kingdom of God and has sole authority over his church, over entrance and denial into it, over judgment over it. This is the Lord of the church. And so when he speaks, we are to listen. And as he speaks, he starts speaking to the church with a similar phrase each time. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 2. I know your works. Chapter 2, verse 9. I know your tribulation. Chapter 2, verse 13, I know where you dwell. 2.19, I know your works. Chapter 3, verse 1, I know your works. Chapter 3, verse 8, I know your works. Chapter 3, verse 15, I know your works. You think he's trying to get a message across to us. Mismanagement and misjudgment often happen because of ignorance. You can think of the boss who tries to come into a work situation and lay down the law, but you as a worker acknowledge that this boss has no clue what he's talking about. He hasn't been involved in the process. He hasn't seen the details of this work. And so as he tries to come in and steal the ship a different way, you recognize the ignorance that he possesses because he has not been involved. He doesn't know the work. He doesn't know what's going on. And it produces this irritation and frustration in us. And yet you still have to say, okay, boss. Or a parent who comes into a situation where there's some bickering or quarreling among the kids and sees a broken vase on the ground and starts laying down the law because the vase is broken and the parent is pretty sure who did it, but it turns out that it was the sibling who wasn't even in the room. And you get frustrated because you think, well, mom and dad don't know, I have a clue what they're talking about here. I didn't do it. When Jesus speaks about his church, he knows. He knows what's going on inside these walls. He knows what's going, inside, going on inside our hearts. This is the imagery of him walking among the lampstands. That is to represent the churches that are to bear light in the world. And Jesus walks among them, showing that he is present among them. He knows doesn't he say, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also? He is present. He is aware. He has the seven spirits of God, which is to say he has the full measure of the Holy Spirit. He sees everything. In Revelation chapter 5, he's described as the lamb who has seven eyes on his head. That's a fullness of sight. He knows all things. He knows what people are doing and what they are saying. The church that we attended in California was um, right next to a very busy road. And it was, um, from the outside, just looked like this big brown fortress. There were no windows on the building. You couldn't see inside of it. And occasionally the pastor would, would joke to visitors uh, that they just want to come and see what's happening inside this big box because they couldn't see from the outside. 
because you would drive by it, and you look at it, and it just looks strange. You have no idea what's happening inside that box. Jesus knows. He doesn't need windows to see. He knows what's happening inside the church at all times, what's going on beyond, behind closed doors. He has supernatural knowledge of every person in this church. It's not a superficial knowledge. It's not a whimsical perception of what might be right or what might be wrong. He begins each letter by saying, I know. I know. He knows the people in it, the activities, the songs that we sing, the sermons we preach, the Bible studies we have. What does he want us to know that he knows about us? That's the next question. He's the sovereign Lord of the church who knows everything about the church. What does he want us to know that he knows? As he looks at us and evaluates us, what does he see? And this is really the substance of these letters because he knows our works. And he goes through each one of these churches from Ephesus to Laodicea and he lays out what's important about that church, what he is evaluating them by, what he knows about them. He knows their situation. He knows what they've been doing. We'll walk through some of these things that he knows. For example, the church in Pergamum. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. If you ever think you have it bad, just remember the church at Pergamum, who dwells where Satan's throne is. He knows the difficulty of the settings of the church. He knows our culture. He knows what surrounds us. He knows what we're dealing with. He knows all of the difficulties and strains that are upon us because of the ungodliness around us. He knows where we live. He knows we live in 2022. If you are to give Jesus an iPhone, he could use it better than you could. <laughs> he knows the technology. He knows Facebook. He knows Twitter. He knows it all. He knows the ins and outs of it. He knows it better than any of us do. He knows where we dwell and the times in which we dwell. He knows this. And he knows how we respond to it. The church in Pergamum was set up in a place where Satan's throne was. That is to say that there was a place that it was so idolatrous and so rank with ungodliness that Jesus describes it as the very throne of Satan. You might be tempted to think of certain cities in our nation like that. We know the ungodliness that goes on in places like Hollywood, Las Vegas, or New York City, or even Albany. We know the ungodliness that goes on all over the place, and Jesus is aware of those things. He knows the culture in which we live. And as he says to Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He knows the difficulties of the culture in which we live, and he knows whether we're faithful in the midst of it. He knows whether we press on or whether we compromise. He knows whether we stand out as a light in the world or whether we just get shrouded with the darkness of the world. He knows all of those things. He knows in the case of Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 9, your tribulation and your poverty. He knows for Smyrna that they're enduring tribulation. 
He knows that they have resolved not to compromise with the world, and because they've resolved not to compromise with the world, they're actually impoverished. As you read the rest of Revelation, you see that there are world systems that are out to ostracize faithful believers from the economic world. So that if you don't profess a certain mantra, if you don't say certain things right, or you don't subscribe to certain creeds, or you don't do things a certain way according to the world, you get ostracized from the economy, and you can't make an er a living. Smyrna was unwilling to compromise the idolatrous practices of the day, which would require making sacrifices to Caesar to honor him. And if they didn't do that, they were unwelcomed in the commerce of the day. And so they were poor. They lacked physical possessions. Or like the people in Hebrews who are persecuted for their faith and are willing to have their things plundered from them so that they don't lose a testimony towards Jesus Christ. He's aware of this. He's aware of the pressures, of the potential poverty that come upon his churches. Now, as the Western church, we are mostly wealthy, broadly speaking, as a church, but around the world, if you profess Christ, you are unwelcome in the marketplace. You are unwelcome to work at your job if you stay faithful to Christ. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, Jesus says to the church at Smyrna, because they were rich in what Christ had given them, rich in faithfulness, rich in endurance. In the case of the church at Philadelphia, he says, chapter 3, verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which, is no, which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. For this church in Philadelphia, even though they have little power, they're not the mighty, they're not the strong, Jesus knows that. But he also knows that they've been faithful. They have not denied the name of Christ. Or in the case of Ephesus, 2 verse 2, he knows their works, their toil, and patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. For this Ephesian church, he knows how they interact with false teachers. They put them through the ringer. They test them to see whether what they're saying is true. And when they're not true, they call them that instead of tolerating them. And Jesus is pleased with his church when he sees them testing false teachers and proving them to be false teachers and calling them false teachers and not tolerating them as such. He knows that. He knows that the Ephesus church cannot bear with those who are evil. There's a lot more that Jesus knows but just to summarize these points, he knows the cultural and spiritual surroundings of his church. Some are in places where Satan is exceptionally active and where people worship him, maybe not in name, but in deed. He knows that the church will face exceptional tribulation and difficulty. And he knows whether they will compromise with the world and give in to false worship and idolatry even the world's economic practices. As Jesus looks at your life, he knows where you live. He knows where you work. Some of you work in trying environments where there is a pressure on you to compromise to the ways of the world. And if you stand up for Christ, you'll look like a fool. You could even lose your job. 
You face the pressures of what do you do with simple things like pronouns. And how do you handle that? You face the pressures of having to commend people for ungodly lifestyles. Not just to ignore it or not bring it up, but to commend it. How do you stand fast for Christ in a culture that demands you approve their ungodliness? Have you caved in any areas? Have you faced the pressure and been unwilling to stand fast? Or does Christ know that you stand firm in the midst of these pressures? And as a church, as the pressures will undoubtedly rise for churches to continue to accept that which is ungodly, not just in the sexual realm, but in ideologies, and where it becomes more and more unfashionable to profess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe, will we say, oh, he's only one Lord among many? Or will we stand fast? Jesus will know one way or another. Think for a moment how hard it would be to be a faithful, God-fearing, Christ-exalting believer in, let's say, Hollywood, Las Vegas. You can see the pressures that these churches faced and the churches that today also face. But Jesus is quick to commend his churches when they have patient endurance when they don't bear with those who are evil, when they test the apostles or false apostles and call them to be false, when they stand firm in the face of persecution, when they do not compromise, he commends them. He knows about that. But Jesus also knows the church's failures. Chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That Ephesus church was orthodox in their doctrine. They called out false apostles. But it seems like the strain of continuing having to deal with persecution and with false teachers just kind of made them embittered to the world and cynical, and they lost love for their enemies. And they lost love for Christ. And they were just kind of clenching their teeth in the face of false doctrine. Their hearts were no longer softened with love of Christ. Oh, it would be easy for us to become like that, wouldn't it? Oh, we want to stand fast on the word. We don't want to compromise an inch on this thing. And we see all the false teachers and say, they're false, and they're false, and that guy's so false, we don't even know what to call him anymore. And the culture's so godly and so wrong. This world is so wicked, I can't stand it. I can't stand any of it. And our heart just becomes this cloister of cynicism. And there's no love anymore. No real love for God. No real love for our enemies. Oh, beware, church. This is probably one of the greatest dangers that we would face as we strain to be orthodox, that we would become cynical and lose love for God and love for others. Be careful. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Chapter 2, verse 14 says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Oh, we always need to be on guard about compromising with the world. Chapter 2, verse 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. By the way, if anyone comes into the church named Jezebel, watch out. (laughs) Who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Oh, there is a danger of licentiousness within the church. Let us sin that God's grace may abound. And there are teachings out there that just promote that you never get better in your walk with Christ. You just remain a sinner constantly. Oh, no. You grow. Yes, we're always a sinner. We're always a saint. That's a cornerstone 
of the Reformation, but we always grow in godliness. We put off sin and put on righteousness. We don't wallow in our sin. We don't just feel bad about our sin. We repent of our sin and put on righteousness. Watch out for those who would make you compromise with the world. Chapter 3, verse 1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This is probably speaking about a church that looks like it's vibrant on the outside. It's got all of the programs. The the community knows about it, but its testimony for Christ is so weak that there's really no light coming out from it. It's really dead in its witness. Chapter 3, verse 15, speaking of Laodicea, you're neither cold nor hot. Because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. It's often misunderstood here that it's better to be either against Christ or for Christ. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that cold water is therapeutic, hot water is therapeutic. But when you drink that nasty, lukewarm water, it just makes you want to vomit. So be hot or be cold water, be therapeutic water. And that Laodicean church was not testifying of Christ faithfully to the world. They weren't that salt. They weren't the light. They weren't bringing the gospel. Jesus rebukes his church when it forsakes love, when it compromises with the world, when it tolerates teaching that is tickling to our ears or indulging to our flesh, or when it forsakes the witness that it is to possess in a dying world. What do you do when you find yourself not in line with what Christ desires for your life. Well, the same thing you always do when you find that your life is not in line with Christ, you repent. That's what Jesus calls on his church again and again. 2, verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Chapter 3, verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Chapter 3, verse 19, be zealous and repent. Chapter 3, verse 20 is probably the most famous verse in this section. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's often used as an evangelistic verse, offering unbelievers to accept Christ. But really, this is Jesus Christ standing outside of the door of his church knocking. Wouldn't you be ashamed if you found that Jesus Christ was outside of the church? Where's he supposed to be? He's supposed to be inside. If you hear the door knocking and you open up and it's Jesus there, you should be like, "Uh uh-oh. That's not good. Get in here. Let's have a meal together. Isn't Jesus gracious, though? He stands there, knocking at the door of his church for those churches that have put Christ outside. He stands there, knocking. And what do you do? Well, you let him in. Get Jesus back in the church. Fellowship with him. That's the center of it all. Remember, Christ is the Lord of the church. Where is he supposed to be? Among the lampstands, inside the church, fellowshipping with his people. And we become so arrogant at times that we think we know how to do church better than he does and we put him outside of the church. That's why we must always be faithful to his word and what he says about the church. And when we find that we've put him outside of the church, we repent, we remember what he has said, We invite him back in. There's so much more here. What would Jesus say to our church? Well, at this point, I think it's what he's saying to individuals of our church. What's he saying to you from this letter? Would he find you faithful? Would he find you compromising? Would you find, find you orthodox but unloving? 
would he commend you? We must not miss the statistics of these two chapters. Five out of seven of the churches receive rebuke from the Lord. That's 71%. So if you're just playing the odds, odds are we got something to repent of. But we don't just play the odds. What do we do? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen intently. Let him evaluate your heart and our life as a church. Receive the commendation where it's there. Receive the rebuke where it's there. And repent as needed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess you to be the Lord of the church. You're the glorious Lord. We ought not to forget that or to trifle with you. Oh Lord, if there's any ways in which we have forgotten that you are Lord of this church, any ways in which we are compromising the world or unloving in our hearts, Would you eradicate that from us? Show us so that we might repent. Help us to listen with ears that are ready to hear what you speak to us. Father, I think of many in this church who are faithful to you, who love you, and I believe they receive your commendation. And I thank you for them, Lord. May they excel still more. May they press on in faithfulness. And Lord, for those who are feeling the prick of your word and the conviction in their hearts that maybe they've compromised, oh Lord, that you would lead them to repentance, even now, to confess to you their sin, to strive forward in your strength, to live a life pleasing to you. And Lord, as a church, that we might be a bride presented to the groom without blemish, Well, that is why Christ died for his church. Father, cleanse us. May we be conquerors who inherit eternal life. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.